following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, one and all. Welcome this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Welcome to our services online as well, which are simulcast only 24 or so seconds behind real time. That's how it seems to be working. So we're glad that you're here this, this very fine morning. Hope that you found your way here okay. Let's turn to Isaiah 25, please. Invite you then to follow along as I read in Isaiah and the 25th chapter. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, from the blast of the terrible ones, is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all people. Nations. What is that? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground down to the dust on this mountain. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians, please. Chapter 14. As one of my esteemed professors uh, used to say, he was uh, suiting up in his armor, ready for the flamethrowers and the tomatoes to come his way. 
and certain messages that were going to be highly controversial. So, that's what I'm doing this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Where does our church bulletin and the order of service come from? You know, why do we have this with the items listed on it like they are? And many churches do, right? Is it in the Bible to have a section of your bulletin called the order of service? Not exactly, but in this portion of Scripture, starting in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, the Bible gives us sufficient warrant to have this sort of order in our worship. Now, worship doesn't have to be completely scripted, nor is the order explicitly or specifically uh, drawn out in the Bible line by line, but there must be a plan, an ordered arrangement, so that the service truly pleases God. What was happening in Corinth was not an orderly arrangement of things. There was confusion, there was chaos, there was noise, but there was not what really mattered, which was edification. There were simply too many things happening in the service. Some were right and fine things, and ones aren't going to accomplish the goals that are necessary to serve the purpose for which God designed the church. And so we're going to look at how to run a good church service today, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. We'll see how far we get in this, um, and I'm looking forward to it. I've learned some things from this passage of Scripture, and I hope you will as well. Let's read 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, or one at a time, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Judge there means to weigh or discern or discriminate perhaps. It means to think about what's right and what's wrong. Think of it agrees with what has been prior, uh, previously taught. Verse 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent For you can all prophesy one by one, there's that idea again, one at a time, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There's a critical principle right there. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You can be assured there's certain axiomatic principles in life that if you see a situation full of chaos and confusion, you know it's not from God. Immediately. You don't have to even think. Well, I have to think a little bit, but it's just that way. It's just an axiom of life. It's like in James chapter 4. I kind of go back to that time and again where James asks, where do do strife and wars come from among you? Don't they come from your pleasures, your your sinful pleasures that, that war in your members? Yeah, that's where they come from. They don't come from above. They come from beneath, as it were. All right, that's verse 33. Verse 34, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. 
And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. They are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. See, here's another verse where Paul is kind of wrapping up, tying up all the loose ends again, like he's done before. In fact, he did that in 14.1 when he was tying up the kind of ideas of verses or chapters 12 and 13. Here he does it again. And then finally, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. So the situation in Corinth was everybody had something to say. Many were trying to speak, and evidently there was chaos because they were speaking at the same time. There were psalms and hymns and doctrines and tongues and interpretations and teachings and all perhaps interpretations of tongues or interpretations of teachings. And, you know, everybody was popping up with their thing that they thought uh, that they, they had to say. And thankfully today we have a, a situation where God has limited the number of spiritual gifts so that you don't have this idea that everybody is popping up with these things that they're to speak in the church. You know, back then there was the prophecies, the tongues, uh, the knowledge. Those gifts, as we've taught very carefully, have passed off the scene. So we have less of that to contend with, which is kind of a good thing. Other churches think they still have them, and they still could very well have the problems that Corinth was, was having. But Paul says, here's the situation. You, everybody has something to say, but he says, let all things be done for edification at the end of verse 26. This statement is a rebuke of them, that you must have edification in the church. Whatever is not edifying has to be changed immediately, it has to be discarded or put in the right order, uh, done properly so that it will please God and it will build up the church. Now, we grant that a worship service in the church is meant to worship God. God is the ultimate audience, we could say, in a church service. In other words, this should honor God. It should be reverent, as he says, decent, in order, edifying, all of that. So it, it, it is intended to worship God, but that's not all that a church service is intended to accomplish. Part of what it's intended to accomplish is to produce edification in each believer in the church. So it builds up the believer's as it honors and exalts God. And furthermore, hopefully, if there are people who come from the outside, as we illustrated, uh, Paul illustrated very well, uh, back in the, uh, well, let's say verse 24 and 25, if an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, we don't expect the church, you know, the, the, the people from outside to be breaking the doors down to come in. We wish maybe in a sense they would, but if they do, then the church service is not only to worship God and edify the believers, but to evangelize the lost and to hopefully bring them to faith in Christ. That is why we are here. We're not here to entertain. 
or to be a social club or whatever. If you're looking for that, it's the wrong, wrong place for you to be. You can find another place where that might happen, but certainly not here because we're trying to be guided strictly by what God's Word teaches. Now remember, I used the word edification. Edification is the building up, the spiritual strengthening of believers. And it ties in with the word prophet from verse number uh, 6, where Paul says in, in the same chapter, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? So profit, that is not monetary profit, as we said last week, but help, assistance, growth, aid, benefit, with a special focus on the spiritual growth of a person. That's edification and profit. Now, um, when uh, Paul says, let all things be done for edification, what do you suppose he means by all things? Well, it's maybe all things, but let me not be so obvious. Let's think about this for a minute. When you are in the church, all things are to be for edification. You could think about that in your home too, right? What about at your work? Yes, but let me emphasize that some people kind of get confused and they think they're supposed to be an evangelist all the time at their work. No, when you're at your work, your purpose is to do your work, right? Along the way, edification. Along the way, put in a good word as you can and all of that. But your, po- your point is to, to, to do your work. Or at home, your job is to keep your home. At school, your job is to learn. In the church, your job is to edify. But I think we should think a little bit more broadly about edification and think, how can I apply that to my relationships at school and work and home and, of course, in the church? So we want edification to be broad, but I think what Paul is really emphasizing in the church here, we're talking about edification. That doesn't mean you can tear each other down outside of the hours of church service. That's not the point at all, at all. So let all things, talking about any church meeting, church context here, be done for edification. But cast wide that idea of the edification principle at home and school and work and wherever else you go to build others up in the faith. Now, Paul is given by God here some limitations on the exercise of spiritual gifts. You might think, well, that's kind of strange. I mean, if you have a spiritual gift, shouldn't it just be kind of overflowing and going everywhere and, 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 and filling up the, the service of the church? The answer is no. Paul says, if anyone speaks, let it be two or three. If anyone prophesies, let it be two or three. So he puts some limitations, some fences to protect this thing from getting out of hand like it had in the church. And so he starts out by, by talking about these people who are speaking in tongues, verse 27 verse 28 in particular. So he says, the number of tongue speakers is limited to two or three. Now, when I say this, don't hear me saying in 2021, the number of people who can speak tongues in this church is two or three. We've already dealt with the idea that because of the completed canon of scripture and the uh, exhausted purpose of the gift of tongues and all of that, that tongues is not for today. So Paul is dealing with an issue that is 
current for the Corinthian church at that time. And may I point out that in most of his other epistles, and especially in Titus and in Timothy, especially Timothy, Paul does not mention anything about how the church is to use the gift of tongues. Now, I have a thought about why that is. Let me, let me back that up for one second. 1 Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, in the household, this is how I want you to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the what? Pillar and ground of the truth. In that letter, he says nothing about the exercise of knowledge or tongues or the gift of, of, of revelations or anything like that. And I think that is simply because by that time, the New Testament was coming to completion and the gifts that God was giving were being reduced and almost gone such that by the time the New Testament was completed, and perhaps even before, if we think about John writing in 90, 95 A.D. or late, late 80s, it may have been by the 80s that the gifts were already gone, that we exist today in a state that was just like what the church existed in 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 80 or 90 or 100 A.D., where they had no, this was not an issue anymore. There were no tongues to to compare conflict with the rest of the service. So we've set that all aside for ourselves. We understand how that that works and how the gifts here are temporary. But in this case, they were still operational and had to be regulated. So Paul says two or three. The fact that he's limiting it to two or three tells you something, doesn't it? That means they probably had six or 12 people trying to pop up and say something in the church. This wasn't the pastor saying six or 12 different things. This was six or 12 different people or or 10 people trying to speak in the church and maybe at the same time. Now, one problem with that is, of course, the congregation can't process multiple people speaking at the same time, and the congregation probably can't process when there are five or six different messages going on. It's too much. One at a time is enough for people to understand. So the church would have been overwhelmed to try to keep in mind everything that was going on in the service. service. And there has to be a certain cohesiveness to the service, the worship, the orderly uh, laying out of the program of worship of God with fewer speakers instead of more speakers. More just causes confusion when you get up in those numbers. Now, it says those ministering in the church, and I'm just emphasizing this notion here, must speak one at a time. Each in turn, verse 27 says, each in turn right there toward the end of the verse. And then verse 30, uh, sorry, 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. So one at a time, not several at the same time. With multiple speakers, edification is nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. Now, Also, if somebody was speaking in a tongue at this time, there had to be interpretation. That was a requirement with no exceptions. So if there was no interpretation, then no tongue. You know, giving a message in a foreign language made made edification even more impossible, much less multiple of them going on at one time. So no interpreter, no tongue, okay? That may be one of the things that charismatic churches violate today by not having an interpreter. 
it's tough to have an interpreter of gibberish, but let's grant if that were a real gift, they would have to exercise it this way to be biblical. So if there's no interpreter, then the person must be silent in the church. And what that means, just take a look quickly at that. Uh, verse 20, uh, or yeah, 28, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. What does that mean? That he cannot talk at all in the church in his mother tongue? No, it means that he's not to exercise that gift before the church. He's not to be standing up before the whole body, speaking, teaching, whatever he's doing in this tongue. He's to keep silent in the church. But it means in this context to say nothing, to keep still, to close his mouth, now, if somebody were today to ask me, uh, you know, I, I have something to share. It's going to be in a foreign language. Uh, I would say, well, is there an interpreter? No, then we cannot do it. But if they were to claim further that it was a gift, the spiritual gift of tongues, I would have to say, well, let's pause and let me talk to you about this at some length. And let me show you everything we've gone through in this series in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 to disabuse you of the mistaken knowledge that you have about this gift of tongues. Now, Paul goes on and he says, here's the same limitation for the gift of prophecy. Let two or three and let the others judge. The rest of the church, while they're doing that, is to listen carefully. They're to be kind of like the Bereans, remember? More noble, listened compared to the scriptures. They said, yeah, what he's saying lines up with what the Bible says. Good, we can take that. If not, discard it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, test all things, test those prophecies, don't despise them, but hold on to what is good, discard what is evil, what is wrong, what doesn't fit in with the text of scripture. So instead of, so when the, a prophet got up to speak or say, I'm proclaiming the word right now, the job of the church is not completely described by me preaching. The job is described, look at verse number uh, 31, you all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all be encouraged. Sorry, back in uh, 29 is where I meant to go. Let two or three prophets speak and what? Let the others judge. I'm only doing one part of this church service. You all right now are doing the rest of it. I'm doing the speaking. You're doing the judging. You're doing the discerning. You're doing the thinking, the understanding, the distinguishing between right and wrong. You're ascertaining if what I'm saying is right and true and agreeable to the rest of Scripture. For us today, that simply means comparing what is said with the content of Scripture. In that earlier era, it was a bit more difficult in the sense that Scripture was incomplete. You know, they couldn't say, well, that doesn't agree with what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, because Paul hadn't written Colossians chapter 3 perhaps yet at that time. And so they had to really put their thinking caps on and think, okay, is this apostolic? Is it coming from an apostle? Um, does it agree with everything else we know from Scripture? Does it agree with what we've heard from Paul and Peter and James and John and, and all these ones that are specifically called by God. And then it was made yet more difficult 
actually not any more difficult than for us today, but for them it was more difficult because they had false apostles running around. They had people running around saying, hey, you know, there's Paul. Well, I'm, I'm the same kind of thing. I'm, I'm doing what he's doing. And they were f- preaching a false gospel. Amen. Wrong information, saying the Lord had already returned. You missed the resurrection. You missed the rapture. All kinds of problems. And so they really had to be on their toes about this. Uh, and so there is a need for you folks to be flexing your brain muscle while, while we're preaching. The heavy lifting has to be done by you as you're sitting there. You can't just check out, you know, close your eyes, fall asleep, and get it by osmosis. It's not going to happen. You have to be thinking. You have to be doing that heavy weight lifting of, of paying attention. I mean, first of all, you have to pay attention. I often realized this in school and saw this to be the case. Half of the battle in school was just going to show up and to pay attention. If you did that and you, you, know, you would then hear and process some of the stuff the teacher was saying and you'd have at least an idea of what you're supposed to know. Now, you might not, you know, you still have to practice and do the mechanics of all your math problems and, and all of that sort of stuff to, to, to work it out, but you've got to pay attention. If you don't show up or you don't pay attention, it's like not showing up. It's worthless, useless. Why do college students pay all this money for college? Well, they don't, actually. Their parents are paying, and then they're skipping, right? Why are they paying for college classes if they're not going to the class? Yeah, it just doesn't make much sense. So don't come to the church and then just check out in this nice, warm auditorium and say, ah, I can rest now. Think. Now, there seems to be a situation also here where verse 30 says that somebody could have received a new revelation at that moment. Again, not this doesn't happen today, but then it could have. And if that happened, Paul says, then uh, the others should sit aside and let him speak so that all can learn and be encouraged. All right, so let's drop down then to verse 32. It says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Um, If you have a a report of somebody who goes into a, a prophetic, I'll call it a prophetic conniption fit, and they're just out of control, and they're getting this kind of revelation from somewhere, somewhere, uh, you have got to really be wary of what they're saying immediately, without even knowing the content. Prophets are under control of their faculties. They're not going crazy. They're not getting all kinds of weird you know, um, things happening to them as they're receiving knowledge from God. Prophets, and, and when, they did, when they give out that information, their, pro, their spirits are also under control. So the spirits of the prophets, that is the human spirits of these people who are, have been given the prophetic gift, those spirits are subject to them. In other words, they exercise self-control. They're not wild in their, uh, you know, say, prophetic utterances or gibberish tongues or or whatever it is. Their own spirits are subject to themselves. They're in good control of their faculties. They're sober-minded. And, and I put in my notes, that doesn't mean like as opposed to drunk, but in the 
mystery cults and religions of this time, people would receive, receive information, they thought, when they were in a state that was drug-induced. And that is no way to, to live. I, I read a headline just the other day. Some professor at a well-known university has to, you know, feels like he has to take his right amount of heroin to have a work-life balance. I mean, he ought to be fired right now for that. That's foolishness. Illegal, too, by the way. You know, a work-life balance. No way, my friends. You have to be sober-minded, not just with regard to drugs and alcohol, but just with regard to every aspect of how sobriety could be thought of. You know, not, not drunken on emotions, not, you know, crazy with all kinds of depression or, or whatever else. Get, get a hold of yourself before you're going to do this kind of ministry. So, sober-minded, self-control. Otherwise, the evidence really is that the message or the messenger is not from God because God is the author of peace, not confusion. The author of sobriety, not drunkenness, not wildness. So if there's a hubbub going on, as we say, you know it's not from the Lord. For all of us as Christians, self-control is a critical principle. I've, I've learned that myself over years of walking with the Lord and trying to help people understand we have to learn, and I'll go right to the hardest of the most difficult departments of our lives to, to learn self-control, and that is between these ears. We have to learn how to control our minds. We have to be self-controlled. The battle is in the mind. Oh, yes, it's in the flesh, but the flesh is driven by the mind. The desires of the flesh are the desires of the mind. And these are corrupted by sin at the deepest level, and they must be addressed, and we must control them. We must say no to our thoughts. We must, as some have said, talk to ourselves and tell ourselves how to think, not be told by our flesh how to think. Do you know the difference between that? You know, the idea that you just let go and let whatever happens come through your mind just come through, that's not Christian. Because what will come through is what your flesh will send there. So instead of doing that, you kind of look at yourself from the outside and say, self, I need to think this way. I need to meditate on those things which are above. I need to think on things that are pure and lovely and just and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. That's the kind of thing that I need to think besides all the other things that I need to be self-controlled about. Self-control. You know, get up and do something. Don't just sit there. Make yourself operate for God in your home, in your workplace, in your church. Don't just be lazy about these things. Self-control. So you have to say no to yourself, you know. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. And he's the author of self-control, not of people out of control. And notice this in verse 32. Sorry, verse 33. They're all running together for me here. Uh, he says this, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, I think he's going to touch on this idea again when he comes down to verse 36. You know, 
or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only to you that it reached? What he's saying basically to the church in Corinth, you're not the only church. Don't think you're so special. Don't think that, um, you know, the rules don't apply to you. They do. You know, you're not just such hot stuff because you've got all these people that claim to be able to speak in tongues there, and you can just go out of control and it doesn't matter. Paul is giving principles, guiding light for all churches at all times, in all cultures, in all nations, without exception. So, you know, some today say, well, that was what Paul wrote back then. You know, and Paul was relevant to what I'm about to say. Paul was a misogynist. He was patriarchal. Uh, he, he was uh, close-minded. But we know better now. Oh, uh, we cannot know better now. Yeah, we cannot know better now. So this applies, broadly speaking, across all the churches. These rules apply. Nobody is an exception or say, well, you know, I don't have to obey that. That's not for me. That's for everybody else. You know, common phrase today, rules for thee, but not for me. We see that in our politicians these days, don't we? Yes, well, this, these things apply to all the churches. Paul's very clear about that. Uh, let me uh, go down to verse 37 briefly and just highlight the last part of verse 37 as a precursor to what I'm about to say with regard to the role of women in a well-ordered church service. It says at the end of verse 37, the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. They are the commandments of the Lord. Now, uh, please give me the benefit of the doubt for one moment. What Paul writes here is just as inspired as the red letters in your Bible. Are you with me? Yeah, some people have this kind of innate idea that, you know, boy, when I get to the Gospels and I see the words of Jesus, well, those are really, that's really where it's at. But Paul is saying, the words that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. That is Jesus speaking through the Spirit to Paul, to us. That's what Jesus said in the Gospels when he said, the Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. Now, what he's saying is this. I haven't told you, look, it's too much for me to tell you everything right now. Remember that when he said that? You can't bear it now. It's too much. But when he comes then he will guide you into all the truth. And so what's happening is Jesus is saying, there's going to be a body of information that's going to come out from the disciples, the apostles, and that is what we call the New Testament. That is the commandments of the Lord Jesus. We can take that idea all the way through the epistles, Acts, Romans, all the way through Hebrews, Peter's letters, John, Jude, and then look at, uh, look at the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, and that was signified by his angel and given to his servant John. The Bible, and here the book of Revelation, is the revelation of Christ. 
It's the New Testament revelation of Christ. That which he did not have time or the apostles did not have ability to receive while Jesus was on the earth. But when Jesus left and sent his spirit, then he could give them this information. And what Paul is writing here, you might as well put in red letters. This is Jesus commanding the church, not Paul. This is the, this is the mistaken idea that people have today. Well, Paul, you know, Paul the misogynist, Paul the patriarch, Paul the whatever. This is Jesus speaking, not Paul. So I say that as a preface because this is very unpopular, what we're about to say here. Uh, and it's what the Lord says, so I'm reporting it to you. And I believe it, and I think we should practice it too, because this is what God wants us to do. So among these unpopular verses are these, verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, for they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Wow, how much time do I have here? Um, read these verses carefully. Take them plainly. They mean what they say. And these, are, these principles are uh, applicable to all the churches, not just some, but all, just like we read in the prior verse. They did not pass out of vogue like you know, last year's style and clothing or, or hair uh, cuts or whatever. Nor do they change because... Academia has decided that it knows better, nor does it change because a movement called feminism comes along and says, well, that's outdated and we know a better way to do it. The Bible says that women are commanded to keep silent in the churches, plural. And we, we already looked at that verb, to keep silent. Remember that in verse uh, 30? But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. And remember the, the context that I gave to that. Here's somebody that wants to stand up in the church and speak to the body and teach in this tongue or this prophecy. And they're to keep silent. Uh, verse 28 and actually verse 30 have the same, this idea of keeping silent. So... What we want to do is kind of just unpack what this means a little bit because this can be troubling to people on multiple levels. Um, this is an imperative. Let your women keep silent means they must be silent. That's a command. It's very clear in the Greek. There's no question. It's not a, permission, a permissive thing. It's not permission. It's a command. And it's how the command is expressed in the third person in English. Um, just like if there was no interpreter around, the tongue speaker had to remain silent or to be quiet, okay? And being quiet means the same in all these verses. So let me suggest what verse 34 does not mean, and then let me kind of unpack what it does mean. What it does not mean is total silence from the time a woman enters the church doors until the time she leaves, that seems obvious, doesn't it? Paul's talking about the worship service of the church. He had a context where several people were talking in tongues. Several were giving prophecies. Others were listening and discerning what was being said, interpreting a message given by another person, whatever. Silence does not apply during the pre-service, post-service, or intermission times of the worship service. Okay, You have to think about speaking like, Who's speaking this morning? 
Well, I am. You aren't. Okay, that's the kind of speaking. Now, what does it mean then? Verse 34 means that a woman is not to teach or address the assembly with a tongue or prophecy or a teaching from the Bible. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to draw that parallel in here uh, because it is extremely relevant. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. He doesn't say because, well, that's the culture today. No, it goes all the way back to creation. Adam first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Those are the two reasons why Paul says the man was given the role of leadership in the church. So it means that a woman is not to teach or address the assembly with a tongue, a prophecy, or a teaching. In short, she is not to lead in the church. Are you with me? Okay, Not to take a speaking role in the sense of leading in the church. Leading in the service is the heart of the matter here. That is reserved for men. In fact, Paul says, how bad does he say it is when that doesn't happen or when the women are leading? For it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. That's a pretty strong word. Wouldn't you say? Shameful, disgraceful is what it means for that to happen. There are many, many, many churches in the West, many churches in our own country, many churches, some that I know in South America, are uh, somehow they overlook this issue, and they're letting uh, women lead in the church services. And they use you know, convincing sounding excuses like, well, the pastor's letting me do it. Or uh, there are no men qualified in the church. Well, let's just boil it down. If there are no men qualified, then there's no one qualified, none at all qualified to lead in the church. In other words, you can't just say, well, there's no men, so, but we're going to have church anyway. No, you don't have an ordered church if you don't have a pastor who's a man somebody who's leading in that way. It doesn't mean a seminary graduate. It doesn't mean somebody with 20 years of pastoral experience. They may be a relatively new believer, but it must be a person that is a man, biological man, I guess I have to say these days, to lead the church. Uh, any church that has a woman pastor or uh, woman, women teaching men is out of order, and that is a shameful situation. Now, I know what I'm saying falls on ears, many of your ears that have been conditioned to revolt at that idea because of the culture. Uh, you know, especially people who haven't grown up in a church like this. It's just shocking to hear that sort of thing. But again, we remind ourselves that this is Jesus speaking here through Paul. He knows better than I do, and he knows better than you do about this matter. It's not me saying this. I don't have a kind of a, you know, somebody from the outside is going to say, well, that's, that's convenient for the pastor to say because he's a man and he wants to retain all of his power. Look, yeah, what do they know? That's right. I have no vested interest other than to obey God's word, okay? If 
God said men cannot lead services in the church, then I have to sit down and zip it. That's all. Okay? But he said what he said here, and I'm not questioning what he said here. Now, in addition to the situation being of a woman pastor, by the way, if the church has a woman pastor, they don't really have a pastor, but if a church has that situation, it's not only the whole situation is shameful, but I, I, I would challenge the men in that setting, the men who are in that church. Are you not ashamed of yourself that you are not standing up on your hind legs to lead in this church? Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you permitting this to be the case? Why are you shirking your responsibility I could say the same for men who, who, who don't work, who don't lead their family, who don't support their family. You must do that as a man of God. You must. Now, verse 34 means that a woman is not to lead. It, all, it also means, notice, uh, they are to be submissive, as the law also says. So this attitude of submission is to be taken upon herself, a woman is to do this, just like in the home relationship in Ephesians 5, a woman is to submit herself to her husband. It doesn't say, husbands, submit your wives to yourself. You know what I mean? It's a different thing altogether. When a wife willingly takes on her role, it makes her life easier. It makes the home run better. Of course, when the husband takes on his role, what is his role? to love his wife as Christ loved the church. I dare say, I mean, both jobs are hard, and both jobs that God gives, one to the husbands and one to the wives, are because their character needs to hear that. Wives need to hear to submit, and husbands need to hear to love, because our flesh tends not to do those things. But I dare say it's a pretty tough job to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Woo! That's a high calling. That is a high calling. Well, anyway, a wife, a woman, rather, a woman in the church is to have this submissive attitude. The principle correlates with the writings of Moses. Now, there's not a specific passage uh, you know, that says this very thing, but I'll say this. In Genesis 3.16, when God set the order of the home during the, at the point when he gave the curse, your desire is going to be to rule over your husband, but he's going to rule over you. That's the teaching there. So God sets the order in that passage of Scripture. And this is the general tenor of the whole Mosaic law. I mean, you don't see God ordaining queens over the nation of Israel. Um, in fact, who was the one queen? What was her name, remember? Athaliah. Not a good character. Not a good character at all in the Bible. Very few examples of women leadership in the Bible and no instruction toward that end. Now, I say this to say you should feel a, a kind of, if you're a woman, a, a kind of hesitancy to speak out unless you're requested to do so as when we you know, ask for prayer uh, requests or we have prayer. And you might ask, well, in, in a practical way, what do I do about prayer time? I mean, we, I've heard women pray in the church, Pastor, here at the church. So do you believe this you know, passage about being silent? Again, I go back to the principle that Paul is teaching, leading, not leading, 
and showing submission, not leading and showing submission. So I have to correlate that with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which talked about women praying or even prophesying with their head. Remember the head covering business? Women were praying in some context in that church. So the first, the, the thing happens, the thing that happens regularly in our church is that women do pray. We offer them opportunities to pray. But the thing that does not happen in this church is women teaching the Bible to the whole assembly of believers. God's given women a different role, teaching younger women and children and in the home. Now, we'll get to some more of what this means in just a moment, but hang on uh, because I'm stuck in the middle here. Uh, Verse 35, if they want to learn something, let let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So what does verse 35 then add to our equation here? Well, it means that a woman should not raise up her voice to ask a question during the church service. What is a question? Well, it's an inquiry meant to learn something. Uh, Sometimes I've gotten questions which are not questions at all, but are rather assertions or a woman teaching me what I should have taught in the church service. That's not appropriate. Uh, Questions also, notice this, are to be directed where? Have you ever thought of these words before? This This is different, perhaps, than what you're accustomed to thinking. The, church, the, the Bible here says questions are to be directed toward one's own husband. Uh, it doesn't say, you know, wait until service is over and then ask the pastor. It says ask your husband. Ask your husband. Now, what if you don't have a husband? Well, that's a complication. Go to your Christian father or your brother if you have one. Uh, if not, then maybe some arrangement can be made for your questions to, perhaps you could ask in a, in, a, in a large church, I can easily imagine this, I could task my deacons, our deacons here in the church with this, you know, be ready to receive questions from those in the church that have no other place to direct them. You and your wife can minister to that person who has a question, wants to know and, and learn and get some clarification about something. Or perhaps the church is small enough, like ours is, for the pastor to field questions uh, directly. But this is awkward for me because as I read this passage, I could almost, I could see myself becoming like a substitute for the role that a husband or father or brother should have. You know what I'm saying? I'm not supposed to stand in your husband's place to answer your questions about the scriptures in the first place. The pastor doesn't want to contradict a husband or, or sometimes, you know, pastor, my husband says, but what do you think? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm just put into the middle of a pickle, you know, a rock in a hard place. I say, I'm getting out of here now. Yeah, no, we can't. It's better for husbands and wives to work those things out between themselves unless, you know, counseling is required. I've I've always offered, if you have a problem, come, we'll talk privately. We'll work through that. 
But the bottom line is non-leadership and submission are the main principles for women in the church. Again, we're talking about what the Bible says about this, not what men want to say about this. And, and often when this comes out, there's going to be immediately pop up an unsubmissive attitude. You know, I don't get to pray or ask my question. I don't get to teach. Like what I'm supposed to, you know, what I feel like I've been called to do. The Bible says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because that, that's in the context, by the way, of receiving the implanted word of God. Not just a general be slow to anger. That's good too. But don't get upset when I'm speaking the word of God and it says, let your women keep silent in the churches and you say, I will not do that. You, you deal with that with God, not with me. That's not good. That unsubmissive attitude does not please the Lord. That's out of line with Christ. Now, let me give some practical application of this to close. I spoke about this with Naomi briefly this week, and uh, this question came up. What about a woman singing in the church? Let's just deal with it, as, as Naomi does, as some of our other ladies do. And she confessed to me that sometimes she's felt uncomfortable because of this passage of Scripture. Can you see how? She might feel that way. It says to keep silent. If you, just, if you don't understand the broader context of it and what it means, this non-leadership and submission uh, notion to the context, then it could throw you for a loop. And some churches, they really believe that that means nothing. Okay, No singing even for a woman in the church or a group of women. Okay, As I understand things, however... A woman singing in the church, a solo, is not violating the non-leadership and submission qualities that this passage is, or principles that this passage is teaching. She's ministering in a submissive way, in an orderly fashion, in a humble manner, using a God-given gift, doing it with grace, encouraging fellow believers through the vehicle of music and lyric. Now, I understand that in Colossians 3, 16, it talks about teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's teaching and singing tied together. Uh, And so some churches may not permit a woman's soloist because they would say, well, singing is teaching. But it seems to me that everybody is clear here, at least, that my wife is not a co-pastor. She's not leading the worship or acting in any kind of leadership role. She's serving by singing or playing the piano, as are other talented ladies in the church. So that's my resolution of that question. Uh, could, I be, could that be improved upon? I suppose. Uh, yes, it could. I'm not going to close myself to that possibility. But that's my understanding presently, and that's been our practice. But it's, it's helpful to wrestle with this text and say, okay, I've got to now wrestle with that idea. You know, what are we doing? Are we doing right here? Now, an area where I think I needed some more improvement is the next practical matter, and that is, again, about this matter of asking questions, where it says that the wife should ask her own husband at home. Sometimes it's awkward when questions come to me during the greeting time at the door because of the lack of time for an adequate answer or 
the, the hubbub going around the door. I'm not using it in a bad sense, but just everybody's coming and going and greeting one another and all of that. And I want to greet everybody and not get caught up ask, answering a question for 10 minutes and miss you know, 90% of the congregation going out so I can say uh, good afternoon to them and, and all of that. Or you know, there's distractions or sometimes lack of privacy. Somebody wants to ask a question and it's like, uh, you know, I don't want anybody else to hear what we're talking about here. So, we, you know, that it presents as difficulties. That's just generally about questions. Now, I'm not saying no questions at the door. Don't hear me saying that, okay? But um, sometimes I feel, as I mentioned, questions that are meant to be criticisms. You know, Pastor, you missed this, or you didn't think about this. Well, it may be true that I missed it or didn't think about it, or maybe that I just left it on the cutting floor. You know what I mean? By the cutting floor? Because I didn't have enough time to say it, or I say it wasn't, you know, that important, or, you know, I know, like for instance, on in these videos that I'm starting to produce, these very short snippet videos, two minutes, two and a half minutes, somebody's going to say, "Well, Pastor, you didn't talk about." I only had two minutes. <laughs> I I limited myself to that amount of time because I I have a purpose in doing that. So I'll have to make another two-minute video to explain what I left out in the last two-minute video. I guess. Okay, fine. Um, but after studying this issue, which I hadn't done before at, at this depth, I am thinking about it more deeply. Think about a Q&A session or a, a question during the week or by email from a, a wife in the church who has a husband. I wonder what the wife asking me a question does to the husband who knows that she's supposed to come to him first. Did you ever think about that? Does it honor the husband for the wife to go to the pastor first? Has he given his blessing for her to ask the question? Does her doing so undercut the husband's authority? Does it make him look uninformed? Does it dishonor him? Does it make him look weak? Does it make him look immature? Does it make him look dumb? You know, he can't answer this question. I've got to bring it to somebody else who can. I think these are important questions that we need to consider. both uh, husbands and wives. And I've, I confess to you, I've been insensitive to that issue. For years, I have had, because of my training, the zeal to take any and all questions from the Bible and answer them. Because that's kind of how I felt was, you know, was my job. But just because I could answer them, you know what I'm going to say next? Doesn't mean I should answer them. Because... It may be that by my saying, have you asked your husband first, I'm pointing her to honor him, strengthening their bond. I'm pointing her to go to her spiritual leader, her immediate, you know, uh, immediate boss. Don't go above your boss's head, right? Okay. Uh, going to go there first and get this. I'm pushing the husband to get his ducks in a row to be able to answer the question. 
Do you understand how that works? God is very wise. Wow, is he wise. And to have Paul say this, that questions need to go on the right route. And in my zeal to take any and all questions and answer them, if that's been unmixed with concern for what that does to the husband, then that was not a virtue but a flaw. I should have directed you first to the proper place. In other words, you know, we look at this passage and we say, boy, compared to where we come from in feminist Western culture, this passage is all about putting women down. No, it's not. It's about honoring husbands and elevating them to their proper leadership role. A woman with a husband who leads her spiritually, let me tell you this, a woman whose husband leads her spiritually is blessed by God. Blessed by God. Do you understand that? A woman who has no spiritual leadership, that's a, that is a wilderness you don't want to be in. But many people are, and they don't realize they're in that wilderness. That's not a blessed place for a person. And if you can't see that, then stop to think about it a while before getting upset, as James tells us, two ears to hear one mouth to speak. So maybe for the next Q&A session, I say, uh, you know, check with your husband first before asking something. How about that? Or maybe I'll respond, have you asked your husband, what did he say about that? And if you reply and give me the answer that he gave you, and it's, that's a great answer. Next question. Or perhaps if some tuning up is needed, we can help with that. But, you know, this we need to take seriously. Now, I, I don't feel that I can categorically deny any female the right to ask a question because I'm sensitive to the fact that we have people who are widows, uh, divorcees, uh, no believing family to go to. So what happens then? Well, come to the church. Come to the church. Get your help from the church. And if your husband or your, your person, if you have, is unable to answer your questions, then he can go to the pastor and work through it. But, you know, and husbands out there, listen, I'll point, the, I'll point the double barrel at you now. Don't be so lazy that you just say, well, the pastor can answer all these questions. The church can do this. I don't have to, I don't have to spiritually guide my wife. I don't have to train my kids. That's the church's job. Uh-uh. We're here to supplement, not to replace your role as the head of your home. All right. Well, I'm done with time, so I'm going to quit. I'm not supposed to do that. You know, I'm not supposed to say I'm quitting here at the end of the sermon, but that's what I'm doing. So that's it for now. We're going to come back and try to finish the rest of this little bit here at the, uh, at the next opportunity we have. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to, to apply what we've learned. These have been words which have some level of difficulty attached to them simply because of the culture in which we live. And I pray that, Lord, we will show ultimate faithfulness to you in this matter as in all others because it's revealed by the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of heaven, not man on earth. Lord, there is no university, no talk show, no newspaper, or a program on the TV that can change what the Word of God says. 
It is what it is, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to have ordered church services with regard to the speakers, with regard to the role of women in the church, and as we'll see, our whole attitude with regard to the church the next time we gather. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.